(laughs) (laughs) I knew it was coming. I knew it. I knew there was another one. And yeah, it literally was like... Hello and welcome to the death of the Roman Republic's review of the 2005 HBO original series, Rome. folks to dotrr reviews hbo's rome the final episode of season one episode 12 calends of february what what a a finale we made it can you guys believe it look at us we're here this is the one episode that i watched more than once it is the only episode i've watched thrice over the last three days or so something like that Mm. um k is taking the lead this episode so i will go ahead and get us started here episode opens at a play to the public reenacting polo and verenus in the arena adia and octavia watch and the crowd chants for polo verenus's actor reenacts the super metal death scene of shoving the mace into a man's clavicle adia comments it's quite good but they're far more handsome in real life funniest moment of the episode for me right off the bat oh man adia great <laughs> a lot of them that girl the actors of polo and Verenus embrace on stage and the crowd cheers vp your thoughts yes as someone that does theater i will redeem myself on a comment that i made a few episodes ago but this is actually fairly accurate to how roman society did theater productions back in theater history they i an example is for those, I, you won't find me, but I'm a theater teacher. Whenever I do Roman theater history, That's a I, I, <laughs> you won't find me, <laughs> yeah, you won't, <laughs> but the, I actually have my students do a project on how they can com- have comparing Roman theater to reality TV. And that is because mm. that is kind of like what Roman theater kind of felt like numerous times. And that's why I have them work on that comparison to help them know the parallels. That's cool, BP. Cole, something to share? Yeah, I just thought it was weird. I feel like the the dude that was playing Polo looked like an acceptable amount like Polo, but <laughs> the dude that looked like Verenus, what what was with the hair there? Like that, <laughs> that looked like a wig, and I didn't really understand it. Well, no, he was definitely wearing like a red curly wig and everything like that. I actually do have a theory on that, but does anyone else want to share? I think it's just virtually impossible to find an actor that can have not like necessarily in real life, but in Roman history time per- period that it would be kind of impossible to find someone with a haircut like that. Who, who else has Kevin McKidd's face? That, that hair, that, yeah, that butt. Exactly. They, the best butt in Rome. Um, True. Speaking anyways. of Arenas, you know, he's like, he's not there, but you know, he would just hate this, that this is oh, happening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I kind of Cole had a theory as to, um, I guess the cheesiness of the production and like the production value as it were, but as the crowd watches, there are very visceral reactions in the audience, despite it looking very non-realistic to our eyes, what we're used to in entertainment, but it goes to show their standards of entertainment and how they symbolize what occurred. Like the big bad gladiator is literally two dudes stacked on top of each other, but nonetheless, they have some accuracy in that Varenus's actor cuts the top actor's legs as he's 
like sitting on top of the other dude's shoulders. <laughs> and at certain scenes, the people literally turn away. Adia's face scrunches up at the contents like it's a photorealistic rendering of events or like a 30 for 30 documentary that's actually showing blood and gore. And so like I take that big red curly wig of the dude meant to symbolize Varinus as just like an exaggeration that is an identifier because I mean... Varinus doesn't really seem to be a ginger, more like a strawberry blonde, but like that's just how they yeah. exaggerate him for the stage and make it easier to see for the folks in the back possibly as well. Okay, that makes sense. Well spoken. Appreciate it, appreciate it. Continuing on here, Polo is recovering at Rome's best hospital and is being sketched by a dude. Will we see the return of Durag Polo? Polo awakens and grabs the artist by the collar, who explains he's only taking Polo's likeness. Polo takes this to mean he's robbing him of something. Speak, thief! The artist says he's being paid to make a mural of him and Varinus in the arena, but Polo continues to hold him by the collar, and his aggression does not yet subside. Polo's back, baby! BP, a thought? <laughs> I just want to know how I know it's a little suspension of disbelief for TV, but in reality, how is Polo still alive given the amount of damage that has come to that man's brain? Hey, he's got metal in the dome. He's, I don't think he's, he got, <laughs> did he's he get hurt in the head in this fight? You know, I don't think I, I think that every cut he uh he sustained was like arguably a flesh wound i guess i i didn't i do not recall a bonk on the head particularly but but this is also in general this i know it spreads out for a couple of scenes this is my funniest moment just polo kind of loopy when he's mm. under the medical treatment because man that just cracks me up every time because polo is so much less he's just so happy-go-lucky most of the time i know right now he's not but Generally speaking, when he's just under medical treatment, he's so much more loopy and fun. He it's becomes even of, more of a himbo. Yeah. It's kind of like the, uh, it's kind of like those videos of people when they get their wisdom teeth taken out and they can post them on social media, just how much funnier they are. Yeah. Yeah. The artist further explains Polo's famous and there's paintings of him all over Rome. Polo asks, famous? Me? The artist explains he and Varinus are symbols of brotherly love and redemption, and that there wouldn't be a woman in Rome who wouldn't welcome him home. Polo chuckles at the thought. The artist asks to be let go. Polo forgets he's holding him, and lets go. Polo inspects the artist's handiwork. Polo then limps out quietly. Sneaky and playful music plays. Polo steals a horse and rides off. He seems to be out in the country. Cole? I wanted to share that uh, this is my funniest moment of the episode. We're getting also, early. Uh, in general, I thought it was funny because uh, when Polo got to leave, I like in my head made a joke to myself about like, oh, I know what he's leaving for. Like, I know what what ticked his box. And it turns out that's literally what it was. I I meant it as a joke. I thought it was like, yeah, I'm going to go see Varinus. And he's like, no, women. But my <laughs> specific funniest moment is when he's leaving. And it's a gag you see in shows and movies like a lot, but I just love it when he like he goes to the right and it just like stays like centered there for like a second no movement and then he just goes back to the left because he went the wrong way <laughs> i love good. that gag so much bp a thought from you this is an honorable mention for funniest moment but it was it, it really came down to just like the fact that polo's uh loopiness comes back throughout the episode but i just love the music choice as mm. he is getting ready to leave because that's what cracked me up the most it's just 
the it's such a contrast to everything else we hear in Rome. It almost is kind of like the opening theme, how it's much more, I wouldn't say up it, this music specifically is upbeat, but just so tonally different from the rest of the show. No, definitely BP. I thought the music was extra good this episode. Honestly, for me, the Rome score does not usually seem very notable. This episode and the Triumph episode were, were pretty good in terms of score, though, in my opinion. Niobe walk around their new property as it's being blessed. Verena says that Caesar may exile him from Rome for saving Polo, or worse, but then says he's joking. Their family, including Irene, watches Verenus and Niobe in the field. Verenus and Niobe lay on the earth with Verenus on top of Niobe, meant to simulate sex. I'm guessing this is a fertilization ritual. They laugh and joke, and Verenus says that they're to lay there until the bell is rung. Niobe says he's meant to be pretending, and Verenus says he is. Niobe says he actually is isn't and then he passionately kisses her the bell is rung insistently but they keep kissing bp you had texted me that this was hashtag relationship goals yeah absolutely <laughs> uh this for some reason i wrote in my notes and i don't know why i wrote it this way but just seeing that singular plant in the field it very much reminded me of the ending of wally -E when uh, they return to Earth, and they're just planting that one little plant, and everything mm. else is dirt. And I guess you could see it as uh, them refertilizing their relationship, just like at the end of Wally, they're refertilizing the Earth. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'd call it refertilizing their relationship specifically, but I, I get the gist. So it was in the supposed seas. to be a joke. <laughs> uh, Jacob, a thought from you? There's some great soil talk in this moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't remember what it is. <laughs> Watch us. Are we having a quiz on soil today? No, 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 no. But, you know, Verena's just lying on top of an IO, but he's like, yeah, this is good soil. Look at it. It's wet. It's you know, it's good. It's, oh, wait, what he's mentioned. Yes, that's right. It's not, doesn't have too much sand. Uh, it, it's a good loam. I'm like, that is a good soil. We do love a good loam. And so um, I said, I, it, I immediately understood why they continued to make out despite the the ringing of the bell by the church man because soil talk gets me going and obviously <laughs> <laughs> yeah eat some of the marinas Ooh. <laughs> and actually that's Tell like, me more um, about the loam that's a, a a not uncommon pregnancy craving is soil for like iron deficiency or something like oh, that really yeah um this is depicted in a tv show i didn't watch but i've also heard it in other places it's almost yeah. like you were a biology major. Well, I didn't learn about the pregnancy thing from my schooling. I learned about it from a TV show I didn't watch. The Great. <laughs> I never watched it. <laughs> There's definitely not a pregnant woman eating dirt in that show because I haven't seen it. I don't watch television. Yeah, Polo passed out, arrives in Rome, falling off his horse. The horse gets away oh, from him hilarious. and he laughs. <laughs> the king is back in town, baby. Continuing on here, Niobe and Verenus return home, and Calistra informs them that Polo escaped the hospital and has returned to Rome, and therefore, Verenus's house. Half dead. Irene looks troubled at his return. Verenus goes inside, and Niobe follows. Polo's wounds have reopened, and he is drugged and restrained. He shouldn't move for ten days and nights. Verenus intends to send him back to the country when he recovers. Verenus tries to talk to Polo, and Polo comes to and asks where he is. Verena says, his house, but he should be in the hospital. Polo said he didn't want to miss the fun. Verena asks what he means, and Polo says, they're heroes. Verena calls it all a fuss. Polo is most excited for the women. BP? I 
know we've gotten Verenas and Polo conversations in previous episodes this whole season, but this is the dynamic of Verenas and Polo I miss the most. It's just this humorful uh Verena's no nonsense and just being like, dude, what are you doing? And Polo just being so carefree. I miss this. I agree. In, in the in the scene right after, and I always they you hear them laughing from the other room, and I was like, oh, blah blah blah, they're back at it. And that's I was like, that was what I wrote. The boys are back at it again. This yeah, feels also, so good. I feel like this is like a this is one of the few times we hear Verena's actually laugh. Yeah. Yeah. Niobe makes the line. Good to hear your father laugh for a change. Yeah, guys. There's a little in between that here. So Verena says Caesar (laughs) will probably throw him back in the arena. Polo's voice cracks and he says, you think he'll do that? Verena says he's been summoned and he'll find out tomorrow. Verena says that if Polo was to get with a woman now, he'd come apart like an old sack. And then they laugh together. Niobe smiles as she hears it. As you guys noted, Verena the Elder comments, it's just like old times. Niobe says, it's good to hear Verena's laugh for a change. The boys are back in town, baby. I see all of us basically have the same thoughts. Arini sits by herself in Verena Square. She hears Polo and Verena's laugh and looks upward. At night, Arini climbs the stairs with a knife to a sleeping polo. She stands over him. He comes to and smiles at her. She puts the knife to his throat. Polo says, fair enough. He grimaces as Arini hesitates. Then he says, if you can't do it, that's all right, too. Cole, your thought. I just wanted to say that uh, Polo's thoughts in this scene seemed kind of in line. Like when she was walking up with the knife, I was like, I'm not happy about this, but I get it. So like. Whatever happens, happens. I'll, I'll accept it, even if I'm sad. Indeed. Niobe makes her presence known and asks Arini what she's doing. Arini says nothing's afoot, but Niobe sees the knife. Polo tries to cover for her and says they were just talking. Niobe chastises Arini, who would instantly be found out for killing her old master. Niobe tells her to go to bed. Polo says Arini looks well, and Niobe tells him goodnight. BP. I am in the firm belief that Irene was actually very conflicted to kill Polo because I think there was some feeling for him still uh, of love. And the reason why I say that is because you can see it in her eyes. Most of all, I just see like, I didn't think she was going to do it. Even if Niobe came in, I didn't think she was going to do it. I know y'all look at, are looking at me like in major disagreement, but I don't think she actually was going to do No, I don't think any of us dispute that, BP. It's like she didn't pull the trigger. I think the reason that she has romantic feelings for him, that's the, the one I made a face. But Jacob, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I, like the, the notion that she still has love for him when she has never shown any love towards him. I think it was just like, um, it's hard to kill someone. And Irene is a nice girl who doesn't want to kill people i think i mean fair but also and uh, i feel like the that becomes even more difficult because polo's like yeah like he's okay like i think she would rather he like be like angry and like spitting because then it's like oh he's a bad person but then he him basically acknowledging like yeah like what i did was wrong like your actions here are fair makes that more difficult for her well we could also think of it as their relationship is a little, not necessarily fully, but a little Stockholm syndrome <gasps> I wrote that down at the very end of the episode. <laughs> All right. Okay. So maybe we do have some common ground here. 
Next morning, Niobe gives Varinus a token and a blessing and looks very worried for his meeting with Caesar. She kisses him goodbye, maybe for the final time. Niobe tells Irene to change Polo's dressings, if necessary, and feed him porridge. She looks upset. Irene spits in the porridge before feeding Polo. Polo smiles and eats it. Polo is officially a Mark Antony level sicko, which is a compliment. Cole, you had texted me that this was hashtag relationship goals. Hey man, you should love everything about your woman, no matter what it is. <laughs> but I, I did uh, have in my notes like a joke of like, oh yeah, I bet Polo was way more eager to eat it now, like that, like this was better for him. Oh man! All right, uh, newsreader is making announcements that it's the Calends of February. Construction is happening around him. The progression of the city of Rome around the newsreader is always a really good marker of the mood of the city. And once again, it seems favorable to Caesar, with a sizable population gathered around, with Caesar's construction projects being enacted. Caesar has decreed 100 men be made senators, which was Octavian's suggestions, and that there will be a public banquet. Slaves and freedmen will not be allowed. As as Renus walks past, the newsreader says that any replications of recent disruptions will be punished with severity. So even if Varinus did the morally right thing, there is somewhat of an uproar. A map is laid out before Caesar. He intends to change the course of the river. Cicero comments, it is possible and a useful idea. Caesar says it is and talks about the plans for the reclaimed land. Cicero wants to talk about the expansion of the Senate. Antony taunts him, saying that there will be Gauls and Celts. Cicero says he's joking, of course. Caesar says they're not. Caesar says Rome is rewarding the longest-serving Gallic allies. Of course, unspoken, these new senators are indebted to Caesar and will surely support whatever he wants in his unlimited dictatorship, propping up his legitimacy. Antony notes Varinus walking in and calls him the hero of the hour. Caesar says aloud, What am I to do with you for interfering in a sanctioned execution? Varinus says he has no excuse. Caesar says he's been put in a dilemma. He could legally kill Varinus if he wanted to, but the people think Polo and Varinus heroes and would thus anger the public. Caesar doesn't want to do this, so he must reward them. Otherwise, he'll seem weak. Caesar tells Cicero he'll make Varinus a senator of Rome by popular acclaim. Cicero laughs like it's a sick joke. Posca and Antony laugh at the novelty, and Caesar looks self-satisfied. Caesar comments Varinus looks like he's seen a gorgon. Varinus says he'll speak for his people in the Senate if he's worthy. Caesar says there's none worthier and kisses him on the cheeks. Antony says, very touching. Caesar says Varinus will stay close to him these first few weeks as he learns the ropes. Cicero interrupts. As a friend, Antony literally guffaws and covers his face at the statement. Cicero feels compelled to protest. Varinus, a pleb in the Senate, is going too far. No offense to you, Varinus, he says. Caesar says he must please the people. Cicero suggests he should build temples, kill someone. The people are easy to please, but this is too far. Gentlemen, we have some thoughts. My point is that I just wanted to uh, give you guys uh, my uh, interpretation of Cicero in this scene. I'd rather die than let the like the the common citizens of Rome decide how the common citizens of Rome should live. <laughs> yes. Jacob? Yes, this is uh I mean, I guess Rome's classism isn't subtle, but I, I just feel like it's notable every time it's brought up because like that's mm -hmm. obviously a, a major point of of strife uh, is like, you know, this disconnect between the established um the you might say uh optimate senate 
and and the people who like under that senate like were kind of miserable and they didn't have jobs and all that jazz and so uh that classism's right back at it because varinus is even though varinus is one of the most accomplished men of the war uh he is a plebeian still and it does not they don't like it and uh also i'm like um they, they they talk about at the very beginning how like caesar is astonishing and then like uh his plan he truly is astonishing like when he revealed that he was not kidding about like all the galls and all that i was a little surprised and then he was like and uh varinus you will stay close to me and i was like that's whoa god this he's smart he's smart i know what he's doing i know it is later revealed what he's doing very immediately but i'm like you know you're keeping him by your side because he's strong and he's killed and people might try and kill you you're clever clever boy clever boy indeed indeed jacob caesar and the rest walk out of the senate antony pats verenus on the shoulder verenus has a moment alone in the senate house Antony advises Caesar he's going to make a lot of men angry for promoting Gauls and Celts to the Senate, and he should double his guard. Pasca says he's already tried. Caesar says guards can keep his enemies away, not his friends. Antony asks if Caesar means him, and Caesar says no. Not that Antony is capable of any manner of wickedness. Antony says, thank you. Caesar says Antony would have betrayed him long ago if he was going to do it. Antony says, don't think I wasn't tempted. Caesar grins. Classic bro talk. Caesar tells Pasca to stop worrying like an old woman. No one would raise a hand to him with the ferocious Lucius Renus at his side. Pasca realizes Caesar's plan and calls it clever. All these years together and it still surprises you I can tie my sandals. I love that line, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. So good, yeah. Verena the Elder tucks in Lucius. Verenus kisses his grandson goodnight. Verenus tells Verena that they're thinking of marrying her off. Niobe says they'll find a rich old man she can wrap around her finger. Yes, Jacob? A couple thoughts here about this scene and what's upcoming. Not not too much. Mostly kind of looking back at what already happened anyway. Um, it's so – it felt good that Verenus was rewarded for following what his heart compelled him to do. Because this whole time previously – He's been rewarded for siding with Julius Caesar, which was not what his heart compelled him to do. It was like at opposition to his morals. And this time he listened to his morals and he saved Pullo and hey, you're senator now. That's cool. And also, uh, this just feels like an important note I wrote down um, at the this beginning of this scene. I was like, huh. Renus really is never going to learn about Lucius, is he? <laughs> so um, we'll see if that note becomes uh, ill-timed, but yes. <laughs> also, um, I did write down, Verena the Elder is woke. I can't remember what she said, but I was like, yeah, that's based. Way I don't go, know, Verena. I know what she, yeah. Niobe says they'll find a rich old man Verena can wrap around her finger. Verena says she doesn't want a rich old man. Niobe talks up all the slaves, dresses, and jewelry she'll have, but Verena says she doesn't want those trivial things. Jacob, that's the comment, right? Yeah, probably. Verena says that when he was her age, he ate bones out of a gutter. Jewelry and those trivial things show that she's valued and loved. And I think that he might be, um, this might be guerrilla marketing for Debris Diamonds or something like that. But <laughs> he makes a good point. Uh, BP. I really like this scene because it kind of shows that Verena's was kind of a little bit of a started from the bottom, now we're here type of guy. He, yeah. was, he started off like, as he said, eating bone and things like that. Now look at him. He's a senator for the Roman Republic. We'll see how long that Republic lasts, but we will. (laughs) 
Uh, Verena says she wants to be married to someone she loves. Verena and Niobe chuckle at the notion. Niobe says it'd be a strange marriage if two people loved each other from the start. Verena concurs that it'll take a while. Verena acknowledges they had some troubles, and Niobe agrees. Jacob. Oh, sorry, I just wrote your name there. I don't remember why. Anyways, um, <laughs> above farmlands, Varenus's fields, possibly? Like this this shot coming up here. Did you guys think that was Varenus's fields where this dream occurs? Yeah, I did. Okay, yes. okay. I also thought that. Above farmlands, birds fly, forming the shape of a skull. It's a dream of Calpurnia's. She's in bed with Caesar, who is up reading. Worth noting, Caesar has consistently been reading throughout this episode. Basically, in every scene, he's multitasking, like he's mulling over unannounced projects he may or may not execute upon. But Calpurnia says it was another dream of ill omens. Caesar said he's had dreams of ill omens for years. Calpurnia says she's never had dreams like this until now. And Caesar asks if she suggests they quit Rome and hide. Calpurnia asks, why not? She's serious and asks if he's not wary of this. Caesar says he is, but there's much to be done. Calpurnia asks, to what end? And Caesar says, he'll ask Pasca about it. They laugh and Caesar says, go to sleep, my dear. He holds her. And Caesar is a real piece of work, by which I mean he is a straight-up domestic abuser, but this scene is really sweet between him and his actual wife because it demonstrates maybe the only healthy dynamic we've seen between Caesar and Calpurnia. He keeps up this sarcastic charm throughout it and not to sound incestuous, which this will. And I know that logically Caesar speaks with command and self-assuredness, but the way it's conveyed, I feel like Caesar speaks to Calpurnia in an almost paternalistic tone, if that came across to anyone else at all. Eh. Yeah. I guess in retrospect, yeah. Yeah. Servilia and Brutus pray to the death masks of the Junii for Brutus to assassinate Caesar. A candle flickers. According to HBO's Rome's wiki, Rubio, not Lucius, cuts off Polo's bandages. Remember? Remember Rubio? Anyways, Polo oh, says... Oh, I forgot about Rubio. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah, he exists. He, 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 the pigeon boy. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Okay, that, when, that when, actually... When was the last time we saw him? playing hide and seek yeah how many episodes that actually, ago i don't remember that answers a big question i had because that kid looked a lot older than the kid we see later and i was really confused about it i was i put in my notes dang lucius grew up pretty quickly and now that makes a lot more sense knowing it was not lucius I mean, to be fair, Lucius was like a baby at episode two, and at least two, three years have passed? Is it three? Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. I'm still not totally sure, but anyways. Rubio frees Polo. Polo says, good boy. He's broken out early. He limps down the stairs with a makeshift cane down to the streets. The king is back, baby. Gosh darn he it. And says hi to a woman who ignores him. He says hi to another woman who ignores him. Polo feels insecure. Then he gets an idea. Hey, Venus, I have a question for you. Guess who I am? Gentlemen, I am putting you on the spot. Uh, what is your pickup line? How are you going to randomly approach a woman in that version? Hey, blank, I have a question for you. Guess blank about me. I'll give you a start here. What? Hey, milady, I have a question for you. Guess how much Reddit karma I have. <laughs> Who's up next? Uh, hello, woman. Guess a number. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, can you tell I did improv comedy for three <laughs> years? Hey, lady. 
guess how many times I've seen Star Wars. <laughs> hey, ma'am, guess how old I think you are. <laughs> ooh, that's good. Ooh. That's good. <laughs> that's the, ooh, that might be able to nug with that's that devilish. one. Are we sure Cole? That could work out great improv? or horribly. Cole should have been on the improv. Let's be real here. <laughs> well, thanks, man. You're welcome. Much love, Jacob. <laughs> Polo limps back to Varinus's house with the girl, and Irini watches. Polo then tells the girl it was nice to meet her, but he can manage from here. Polo still likes Irini, and then asks Irini where everybody is. Jacob? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we came back to Varinus Square and Polo saw uh, Irini, because I was like, how has Polo moved on so quickly? Like, he was in love with this girl and killed for this girl and now he's saying like yeah i'm famous in rome i guess i'm gonna go uh sleep around a little bit i got no problem with that uh, but then he comes back and it's it real he does still have feelings i was like okay that's that makes me feel a little bit better that he's i mean you could argue it remorse. you could argue a knife to the throat is what does it <laughs> and being like all right no, I know wait, he doesn't, wait, BP, would that make you want to get back with the girl who put a knife to your throat? What? No, 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 I'm saying, like, why Polo moved on so quickly. But even then, in that scene, he's not even angry at her. He's oh, like, I know. fair enough. So I don't, I, I don't think that would be justification. No, I, I, there's a lot of, a lot of layers to it, like an ogre. Onion. This is the second time you've uh, used a Shrek reference in relation to Polo. But uh, I just want to say that I, I think it's kind of like a thing where the in love with Irene part of Polo's brain and the in love with having sex part of Polo's brain do not cross over very much. So he was using one part of it and then saw her and then he's like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Caesar is gathering around senators with Varinus. Triumphant music plays as Caesar holds up Varinus's arm. The gathered senators clap. Celts and Gauls walk in the Senate House. Other senators, including Cicero, Cassius, Brutus, and Casca, comment on their new ilk. Cicero says, it's all over. The Gauls have invaded. He suspects they'll go back to Gaul soon, and Caesar will summon them when he needs their support. Brutus notes Varinus shadows Caesar. Cassius describes them as father and son. Cuts to Brutus's stony expression. Cole? I thought this is where it was going to happen, and I was like, wow, this is so much earlier than I thought it was, but then I was wrong, so it's fine. What's this? Whatever could you be describing? (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) The famous Callens of February, of course. (laughs) Casca gripes that a beast like Varinus is now a senator. Cicero says that they must become tolerant of King Caesar, and he's going home to get drunk. As he leaves, Cassius calls him an old fool behind his back. Caesar looks around, smiling, inspecting the other senators. But then he notices Brutus looking at him, and the smile slightly falters. But then, Caesar recovers and smiles and waves. Brutus's stony expression turns to a smile, and he waves back. Great save. (laughs) The conspirators meet. The following sequence is shot nearly entirely with close-ups and shaky cam, as we see and experience the sweat, nervousness, and dread of the conspirators. Kimber is sure that Caesar knows their intentions based on how Caesar had looked at them. Cassius tells him to calm. They'd be dead already if Caesar knew. Brutus says Caesar thinks them cowards. Cassius says they must act soon, as Caesar will continually recruit lesser peoples into the Senate. 
Casca says Verenus stands next to Caesar. Quintus Pompey says Verenus is the son of a prostitute, and he knows Verenus and that he is unimportant. Servilia is here and asks, who is Verenus? Brutus explains Verenus is very popular, and now he's at Caesar's side, and they must reckon with his presence. Quintus thinks they should obviously kill Verenus, but Servilia says they must keep the public on their side. Only the tyrant dies. Quintus suggests killing Caesar in his sleep. He doesn't sleep with the man, does he? Others comment it's not such a bad idea, buying off Caesar's slaves, possibly poisoning him. Gentlemen, a few thoughts to share? Yeah, I saw Servilia in this scene, and I saw them, I, I guess I heard them, say the name Varinus, and I was like, I should have knocked on wood. I wrote down my sentiments about five minutes too early, because she is going to remember. If you don't recall, um, she was told a secret from Octavia when she was trying to get Octavia to figure out what uh, uh, Caesar's affliction was from Octavian, but Octavian didn't, all he could tell was about Varinus's wife uh, being, uh, what, what what is the word um unfaithful, on and unfaithful. and uh so yes servilia knows and uh i was like it's all falling apart it's it's all falling apart and this is obviously how they they pull Varinus away from caesar because he's basically his bodyguard and gosh 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 this is a question that's like uh for more so kind of talking about what jacob was talking about because that's what my point was did Servilia get some type of amnesia of some sort after her attack or was she just so like traumatized that she just was like kind of just her brain was not really one to think about any other like previous conversations she had unless that was your talking point Cole wait no I no, I just have a counterpoint to that uh I would consider the fact that maybe she cared not for the secret of a random Roman citizen she has never met and never intended to meet so threw it away and random randomly came back later. And gotcha. time has passed. Yeah. That, but, yeah. I uh, couldn't tell if it was a psychological turmoil or if it was just she just didn't care. But the, my point was a was similar to Jacobs in that uh, as soon as they started talking, I was like, oh, this is how it's gonna happen. I I really thought Polo was gonna spill the beans, but no, this throwaway thing from Octavia is gonna be what does it. I knew it. I knew it. Octavia is responsible for everything wrong with the Republic. <laughs> oh, that's that's something and, Nadia would say. In all, <laughs> in all reality, though, wouldn't it be Octavian? Because Octavian was the one that said some Octavia. In all reality, isn't it a Vanderpolkio? Because he's the one who's left in <laughs> Niobe. <laughs> Isn't it actually Lydie's fault because she couldn't give him a son? Isn't it actually the Roman census fault for saying Varinus is dead when he was perfectly <laughs> alive in the Gallic Wars? The, those Isn't bureaucrats, it, it always goes back to bureaucracy. It all had to begin somewhere. All right, do we get out of our system? Yes. 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 So. All right, all right. So as the other conspirators comment about subterfugious ways, that's a real word, uh, ways to kill Caesar, Brutus erupts. Gentlemen, this is not some cheap murder. He paces. It's an honorable thing that we do. It must be done honorably, in the daylight, on the Senate floor, with our own hand, with my hand. Servilia grasps her son's hand. Quintus still asks how it shall be done. Servilia looks down in thought. Cut to a river and night and flowing water where Vander's Polkio's body would have ended up. Cole? Uh, I just want to say a quick uh, ending thing about the scene with Brutus. I think uh, all of what he said, like the reasoning behind why they have to do it that way, 
I think that's a big chunk of it. I think also part of it is like, if I'm going to betray him like this, I'm going to at least like look him in the eye when I do it. Mm. I, I like that yes. point, Cole. Niobe sits up wide awake at night. Funny that we were just thinking about possible infidelity. Anyways, Verenus asks possible? what's wrong, and she's worrying very loudly. Niobe says everything's moving so fast. She's scared sometimes. Verenus holds her a reflection of an earlier episode when Niobe held him. Servilia lies in bed thinking. A look comes about her, and she gets out of bed to awaken Brutus, asking about Verenus. She says she has heard his name before. Servilia sends a letter inviting Adia over. Adia thinks it's strange. Antony asks if it is. Adia says that Servilia hates her. Antony says with his devilish charm, so do I. That's no bar to friendship. That was my, that's my funniest part of the episode. That's so good. <laughs> he's we just, love acknowledged toxicity in our relationship. With, without missing a beat, he's like, yeah, I hate you too. But look at me. I'm, <laughs> I'm here having sex with you every night. So, Mark Antony, specifically this episode, just nailing all the quips i know he's got them all in every episode he's in but he is the dog in this episode R, R. <laughs> with mommy and daddy is octavia who's hunched up and octavian who's reading adia says she'll accept servilia's offer anthony now asks if that's wise and adia says probably not but her age amuses me adia says octavian will come with her to protect her from the mad old turtle or Mitch McConnell. Octavia says she shouldn't call her that. Addie implies that Octavia must still have feelings for her, which she says is perfectly natural. Yet she says this in such a sickly sweet way. Jacob? I, it's just another moment where I'm like, Rome just like kind of um, subverses what you think is a secret and what is known and what isn't known. Because I thought for sure this whole Adia Octavia thing was not known by many, if at all, any other than like just Octavian. Do you mean and, wait? But, do you mean Servilia and Octavia's relationship? Yeah. Okay. Me, okay. Mixing up words. You're yes. Good, you're good. Yeah. And like, and and Adia just busted out casually, like, "Oh yeah, you, you still have feelings for her, don't you?" I'm like, "When did we learn about this?" And I'm like, I, I just remind myself that there are no secrets in Rome. Everything is public knowledge, it seems, at all times. Mm -hmm. So, well, it, it does make you wonder. It's like, does does Antony know about the incestuous relationship? Does any other political family actually yeah, know about that? Because there's no rumor flags. mill really going around that. They hide Octavia's scars that she inflicted upon herself in the previous episode. So, I do. I don't know. I I do kind of wonder. They have the cover story and everything. But fair point that I... up there, Jacob Cole. I feel like Antony probably doesn't know about Octavian and Octavia's little thing because I think Adia would at least have like the awareness that like, oh, he'll take that straight to Caesar and Caesar's going to do something with that. Mm -hmm. And even outside of him doing something with that, it'll make us look bad if he even knows about that. So just no one ever talk about that again. Sure, mm -hmm. sure. Or Adia does mention it and Antony cares so little that it went one in one ear and out the other. <laughs> And Anthony's like, my dog, and high fives Octavian. <laughs> oh, oh. He's like, he's like, from one sicko to another. No, that's not a oh cool my. sicko thing. Um, <laughs> Octavia says she feels nothing but pity for Servilia, nothing but pity for herself, nothing but pity for Adia. Adia says, me, you silly goose, and kisses her. Adia just kissing her without any actual malice, even if it is sickly sweet, is actually kind of sweet. She certainly could have done and said a lot worse. 
Arini serves Polo food. She asks why he's dressed for traveling. Polo's going out of the country, and May stop by a shrine to pray forgiveness for all the bad things he's done. He asks, do you think she'll, the goddess, forgive me? Who knows what the gods will do? Polo nods and invites her along. The newsreader announces that the Senate is meeting today. No assemblies in the vicinity. No gaming. No prostitution. Jacob, you had texted me that this was hashtag literally 1984. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was coming. I knew it. I knew there was another one. And yeah, it literally was like 1984. <laughs> <laughs> Gamers <on>. unite. <laughs> see, see, no you've never seen... See, Jacob, this is why I respect you. You've never seen television shows, but you've read books. Well, I know of books. <laughs> Jacob never read 1984. Wait, 1984 is a book? I thought that was just a year in time. <laughs> the, the, lore, the lore gets deeper and deeper. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Caesar emerges from his house and Varinus walks with him and men carrying fasces. A man yells at Caesar, begging him to read a petition, but Rome's dictator for life and newest senator are on their way to the Senate. Servilia greets Octavius. Adia and Octavian, commenting on how handsome Octavian is, and he's practically a man. Octavian says he'd like to think so. Somewhere in there, there's a dark implication of past events. Unsettling. Servilia's slave, Eleni, walks out while the Julii are entering and walks down the streets. Polo walks down the street, too, and sees a mural of him and Varinus. In the mural, Varinus stands fighting triumphant while Polo is depicted weak and on the ground. Polo looks away from it, not proud of the depiction that others see. Once again, Varinus' acclaim surpasses his own. Arini follows him. Yes, Jacob? This, this is where I felt like the pace started quickening of the episode. I was like, oh my god, something's about to happen. I feel like we're not that far in, but we are, we are flicking between things, and there is a tension that is growing. And I was like, oh man. Well, it, it quite literally becomes visual in a moment, Jacob. As we see, workers erect a column as Caesar, Varinus, and company walk by. Eleni tells Varinus, I come about your grandson, Lucius. The camera here, it gets oh. notably increased in frame rate, or at least notably sharper, uh, as we get mm -hmm. a good look of Varinus's coming expressions. Caesar keeps walking, and Eleni tells Varinus that Servilia wants him to know the truth. Quick note, Jacob. God, that shot of Varinus learning the news about Lucius, it I know you already mentioned it, but it is is so cool and so well done. Like, uh there's like a body that passes in front of the camera, right? And while that's happening, the it, it slows down. Like we enter like a slow-mo section, but it's so seamless because that person passing in front of the camera and you're just like really fixating on Varinus's expression. So good. So good. I just love when uh Servilia's slave tells Varinus and we see the flashbacks to the previous moments where it's kind of like him thinking in his head, how did I not put all of this together myself? And I'm just now realizing that all the puzzle pieces were there for me to find out. And I just didn't see it the whole time. Yeah, to speak of those puzzle pieces, Varinus frowns as the truth is whispered to him. Flashback to Varinus walking into Varinus Square again after 10 or so years, walking in Niobe holding a baby, surprised he was still alive. He thinks back to how he saw Evander Polkio kissing Lucius, which I actually don't remember seeing in the show, but I think it probably did happen. But a final flashback to Lydie, who was so upset and not complying with her husband at Varinus' party over something. 
that Varinus never cared to investigate. He only said Lydie could never visit again. He never found out that root cause of her trouble. Varinus angrily departs from Eleni and leaves Caesar. Caesar asks where Varinus went. Pasca says he was just with them. Caesar doesn't mind it and carries on. Antony keeps walking with Caesar, but is stopped about something by a couple senators. Servilius says Adia must be wondering why she was invited over. Adia says she was wondering, and Servilius says she wanted to be the one to tell her what has happened. Adia, bemused, asks, what has happened? Caesar enters the Senate, greeting senators. Kimber asks Caesar about considering revoking his brother's exile. Brutus prowls in the background in 60 FPS. Kimber then nabs at Caesar's toga, and Caesar tells him to take his hands off. Kimber wrestles at Caesar's toga, and Caesar fights him off, confused. Kimber, his voice barely spilling out of him, says, What are you waiting for? Do it now! Now! He's terrified. He speaks like he's in a nightmare, like he wants to and needs to scream, but the words barely spill out, if that ever happens to you guys in a nightmare. BP, a quick thought? I love the good strategy on all of the conspirators and to get find a way to get Varinus out of there to find a way to get Mark Antony out of there to find a way to get Pasca out of there just very very intelligent scheming on their end to get Caesar defenseless without any of his allies there Casca comes out with a knife that Caesar grabs. Blood squirts from his hand and he's pained in surprise. Then a knife actually pierces Caesar in the stomach. He is pained. And then the other conspirators mob him, continually stabbing and slashing as Caesar is quite literally encircled in a maelstrom. The other senators like Cicero are confused and start to flee rather than be caught in the massacre unfolding before their eyes. Antony was held outside and he's restrained as he tries to go in. Pasca too tries to run in, but Quintus Pompey knocks him out. Brutus drops his knife as he watches. Varinus angrily walks home. He's crying so hard, he looks like he was pepper sprayed. He destroys oh, some structure, man. possibly a shrine, as he walks home. Brutus watches a senator literally slip to the stone floor from Caesar's blood. Between the first time I watched this in 2017 and when I rewatched the scene on YouTube years later, I had straight up forgotten how violent this scene is. And I'm being 100% serious when I say the Ides of March is effectively a meme in pop culture that people joke about it. But this TV show's depiction is one of the most violent deaths I've seen in television. For me, it's up at the same level as Negan's kills in Walking Dead Season 7 and Emma's demise and House of the Dragon, but what really affects me the most about this scene is that the viewer suffers with Caesar. Caesar does not drop in a heap at the center of the floor, his eyes glazed over. Caesar stumbles away, he collapses on the floor, arterial blood rendering his once white toga red. His mouth is agape in shock and most terrifyingly because his motor skills are failing him. Cassius hands Brutus a knife, his face and arms covered in blood. Cassius is almost crying and tells Brutus to do it. Caesar tries to stand, but struggles. Brutus kneels before him, looking at Caesar's wounds. As Brutus looks at the dying Caesar, Caesar realizes it's him. He can't speak, but he smiles at Brutus. And I wanted to ask all of you here, why do you think that Caesar smiles at Brutus? In regards to the question, because it's a, it's a very paternal relationship between Caesar and Brutus, I feel like maybe 
maybe it's like a bit of pride or like it feels right to Caesar like it wouldn't be right for anyone else to kill him and it's like that is a it's a very very big powerful moment and like to see someone you consider as close to you as your son like have the follow-through and the courage and the bravery to do that I weirdly feel like maybe Caesar was like proud of Brutus for like following through on his convictions and doing such a, a scary and risky thing um I don't know probably not all those like exact sentiments were going through Caesar's head at the time because you know he's half dying but a vague feeling within that kind of I don't know aura I really like that I was thinking more like a it might be like a I, like Caesar I think it, is quite aware like oh that this is happening like this i'm not gonna miraculously get out of this like this is like i'm dead here so it might be like a at least like in this last moment like like the last person i can see is brutus the person i consider a son as opposed to like these other guys who don't like me and i don't like but there's there is still affection between the two of us so like if the last person i see is brutus then like maybe maybe that's not as bad as it could be bp any alternate theories I don't know if so I have any alternate theories. I definitely agree with Cole and Jacob. But one thing I think is noticeable from the Brutus end is I think Caesar has that smile because Caesar knows how much this hurts Brutus. But in a way, Caesar is kind of satisfied with the fact that Brutus is knowing that this is all for political gain. And not necessarily by Brutus particularly, but for the sake of Caesar's reign needing to come to an end. And I think uh, Brutus killing Caesar, I'm losing my train of thought on this, but I think that it Caesar knew that something could possibly happen to him in this political game. Caesar is glad it's Brutus in the end. Jacob? At- yeah. I had a question of history in this moment, actually, and perhaps it is misplaced and it should be in the history segment. But uh, I was half expecting, well, I was almost fully expecting to hear an utterance of et tu, Brute. But it occurs to me that is that a, a um, I don't know, a, a pure creation of one William Shakespeare and not accurate to history? Yes. Okay. I actually know that. Okay, cool. We don't actually know like what his last words were. The common like ideas are either what was presented in the show that like he didn't say anything because he was stabbed like 23 times or it was something to the effect of like uh, you as well, my son, which is probably like what the basis of Etu Brute is. Mm. When it comes to a theatrical production like Shakespeare's Julius Caesar or anything else, that is purely there for the artistic uh liberty to make drama yeah, it makes sense to, to me life. but in my head it, it's just been, been become so ubiquitous with um caesar's death i was like oh yeah that definitely happened they're definitely gonna say that and it didn't occur to me until i didn't hear it. i was like oh yeah maybe that was just like because of the play jacob there's a tv show yeah. you should check out community that line actually comes up but uh oh really <laughs> yeah. uh once i'm done with gilmore girls which is going great by the way guys wow we should yeah. watch that next <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a gilmore guys podcast already from kevin porter who runs my favorite podcast does he really i looked that podcast up the other day at work yeah. um and i was like am i gonna listen to this and i decided no 
It's apparently very exhaustive, but anyways, anyways, uh, not that our show isn't exhaustive either. Okay, fellas, uh, thank you all for sharing your thoughts as to why Caesar smiled. I probably initially agreed with all of you, but as I've watched this a few more times, my thoughts have changed slightly, so I think all of you bring up valid points. I respectfully disagree. I, at this point, believe that Caesar sincerely thinks that Brutus is going to save his life. I think Caesar is so damaged, he physiologically cannot process he is dying. He can barely see he's losing blood incredibly, but nonetheless, he recognizes Brutus as a friendly face that can take him away and can save him, and then Brutus stabs him. And Caesar, you know, it's not this like paternalistic, I'm proud you're doing this. I'm proud you're sticking to your values. I'm proud if I had to fall and the Republic is restored, it is you, my son. Caesar's expression is shock and horror as he is stabbed by Brutus. As Brutus stabs Caesar, Brutus cries and Caesar falls over, shaking. In Caesar's last act, he struggles to cover his face with his toga, fails, and falls limp. Varinus, in the classic HBO tradition of angry white dads, breaks things in his house. Niobe shrieks, seemingly more in confusion than out of fear. What is wrong? Varinus asks, where is Niobe's son? Niobe is stunned. Varinus tells her to tell him it's not true. He grabs her, yells at her in the face. Niobe offers no defense and only says she thought he was dead. Varinus steps back and sits. His worst fear is confirmed. Tears well in her eyes. Varinus grabs the knife at the table. He angrily holds it, and Niobe says, Oh, Lucius, possibly oh. the first time and only time oh. we've actually heard her say her husband's first, most intimate name. So Varinus good. is breathing heavy. Were he Polo a few episodes ago, he would have already done it. But Varinus's muscles are physically strained as he sits and he contemplates what to do. It's like he's strapped into that chair, struggling to get out, but he is the one holding himself down. Niobe says the boy is blameless and steps out on the ledge of the stairs. Varinus looks up and realizes she's on the ledge and sees Niobe push herself off. The conspirators look at Caesar's corpse. Cassius raises Brutus's hand and triumphantly says, Thus ever for tyrants! Brutus yanks his hand away from Cassius's and stumbles away. He sits. Antony walks in on the scene. He looks troubled and says, We had a good thing. We had Caesar. We had a Senate. We had everything we needed. It all ran like clockwork. You could have shut your mouth, gone to Macedonia, and made as much money as you needed. It was perfect. But no, you had to blow it up. You and your pride and your ego. You just had to be the man. If you'd done your job, known your place, we'd all be fine right now. Um, no, that didn't happen. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I, love I do not remember this. <laughs> Oh, does anyone know? Does anyone know the show? Oh, was that what that was from? No, no, it's it's Mike from Breaking Bad. Oh, uh, you're so that's right. right. I haven't seen that show, but I know that quote apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Say it in the mirror every morning. Anyways, uh, Anthony looks troubled and quiet, oh. and for once is silent. He oh. and Brutus exchange a look. A tear falls from Brutus's face. Antony backs off in the shadows and walks out backwards. In the Senate House, alone, empty, except for his fellow conspirators with blood on their hands, sitting below Caesar's empty chair, Brutus lets out a blood-curdling scream. No! And guys, why, why do you think he screamed no 
in this instance? I, I have a question for the forum again, although Jacob, do you have a quick thought? Uh, yeah, I did. I was just going to say it looked like the first time Mark Antony genuinely looked, def- genuinely looked defeated and his, his shot of him walking backwards into the darkness is genius and so mm-hmm. good and simple, but it's evocative. And it's, uh, I apparently wrote in my notes, uh, genius sadness. So <laughs> excellent. All right, BP. I definitely am biting my words from an episode from a few episodes earlier where I said, I firmly believe that Mark Antony is going to turn up, but I mean, one of the ones that turns on Caesar and he was not, but I was glad that I was proven wrong. Mark Antony was loyal to him to the death. And that defeat showed that I fought, I lost now I rest. I don't think, well, I don't think this I didn't, dog yeah, that impression down, any but yes, he was loyal as a dog here. We just love these metaphors with Anthony. Anyways, guys, why do you think that Brutus screamed no at the culmination of this plan? I believe it was because, like, it's like he was fighting himself this whole time on, like, whether he wanted to, like, follow through with this because, like, he loves Caesar, like, as a father, and he doesn't want to do this, and, like, even when it was happening, he just like he dropped the knife and was just standing there watching it happen. So I think like this is just like that anger and frustration and like self hatred that like this is my fault. I did this. Any other thoughts, guys? It's almost like the seven stages of grief, right? In that moment, it's it's anger or it is also denial. Like this, while this is something Brutus felt he had to do. It is someone he did genuinely care for, and so he is genuinely upset to see this person dead. Therefore, a no is just a, a guttural uh, utterance of, of the sadness, the anger, the disbelief that has overcome our dear friend Brutus. And BP, what about you? Any any new thoughts add? I think both Cole and Jacob had my thoughts kind of meshed into one i think it's very much the combination of the stages of grief as well as brutus seeing caesar as a fatherly figure and i think he says no as well because he they don't know now what is going to happen next because caesar had been in power for so long he is he had become a dictator and now I think the no part of that comes from the, like, we've had this going for so long. Like, no means like, this is just like the end of it all. And where do, where does this go next? Cause this is truly, this m- might've been to quote, to roll credit, the podcast, the death of the Roman Republic. Or, you know, that is a cover rebirth. Uh, good good point, Jacob, because that is the point of it. It's to uh, rebirth, to reincarnate the Republic. Um, but uh, I believe I, I'm really in line with Colesaw. Jacob, your point about the stages of grief. Uh, very good. Very interesting. I li- never really crossed my mind. But I again, I'm more in line with Cole. I believe that Brutus realized as he watched this violent act occur, as he participated in this violent act, that there was no honor in this as he wanted. It was a cheap murder in broad daylight. Servilia concludes her explanation to Adia. So you see, the tyrant is dead, the Republic is restored, and you are all alone. Adia has tears in her eyes. Servilia says she won't harm Adia, not yet. Adia plays dumb and says they've always been great friends, but Servilia says she'll make her suffer slowly and deeply. 
but first she wants to see her run for her life. Servilia will come find her. Adia stands up, as does Octavian, as does Servilia. Adia walks off, and Servilia and Octavian exchange a glance. Jacob? On one hand, I do hate Adia. On the other hand, Servilia, you are a madman. You are a power-hungry beast. You are a, a cruel, treacherous, evil woman. <laughs> oh, my God. Well said, Jacob. Cole? Imagine, like, the tonal whiplash. And, like, I I mean, I would love it if one of them just, like, in the middle of this just killed Servilia. I would have been all about it. Yeah, just, yeah. Like, grab, like, a knife and just... BP? While I've normally hated Adia for most of the season, this is one of those times where it's kind of the moral gray complexities of all the characters that not everything is super black and white. No one's pure good. No one is pure evil. There are, this is just a moment where I'm just like, dang, this is not what Adia deserves. Jacob? Uh, yes. I, sorry, I had another thought that I I scrolled further down. Scrolled. It's a piece of paper. I looked further <laughs> down on my notes. Um, this scene, I actually really, really love how it's lit um, because uh, we we get a real clear focus on just uh, Servilia's face, and there's this light coming from the side that like specifically illuminates her eyes in this really ghastly way like mm. they appear almost gray and just like her calm demeanor through all of this and like just the the shine of those eyes is like it is uh deeply affecting uh to make me think that she is a villain she's a villain <laughs> i i didn't note that jacob but do you think it maybe evoked that death mask imagery that was featured earlier in the episode possibly possibly sure yeah yeah you know, I will say it does kind of surprise me that Adia is so affected by this and she doesn't, um, like, not believe Servilia at all. She doesn't deny that this could have occurred yeah. at all, which is interesting. Maybe season two will open up with her in denial, possibly, but, you know, um, I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, Varinus cradles Niobe's corpse, kissing her. Varinus is convulsing, much like Caesar's was as he was dying. But Niobe is still. Lucius walks in, holding a toy Gladius, pretending to be a soldier, like his father. Varinus is sobbing as he looks at the boy who bears his name, who takes Niobe's features, yet is not his own blood. Polo prays and offers at the Shrine of Forgiveness. Areni watches the sheep. They walk off together, and she takes Polo's hands. Where do they go? Who knows? VP? I definitely got a little worried towards the end of this. I was worried that he was going to kill Lucius, but I am glad that his honor is sticking with him. And I think he has the look on the end on his face that he isn't going to kill this kid, but he is going to raise this kid as if it were his own regardless. And you all can disagree with me on that, but that was kind of the vibe I'm feeling at this moment. All right. but, I don't think he'll kill that kid. But I, I, I don't know what's going to happen to Lucius, but, uh, I don't know if Verena's going to be able to stand to look at that little guy. I can also see that, but I'm also, I'm a hopeful optimistic to think that he is going to say he looks exactly like Niobe. I'm going to raise this kid like he's my own, even though he's not. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did actually genuinely have another note. Sorry. Um, It just, wow. It's just so um, sudden 
that Niobe just like pushes herself off the ledge and you don't even have like a second to breathe or think about it because suddenly like we're into the Caesar's assassination and it's like it comes back to this scene now where Varenus is cradling her body after such an intense moment you're like oh yeah Niobe committed suicide and look yep she's actually dead that's insane that that just happened so fast and um this is also where i did is my final note irene do you have stockholms so yes hmm. cole i am now five and oh like uh, when you asked us to predict what characters would die uh everyone i said died wow vibe check this episode guys me this episode is perfect uh logically i do kind of like take issue with the fact that Niobe's secret was kept under wraps for years when there was half a dozen people, including some children, who would keep this from Varenus. But I don't know. I can excuse that. This episode was perfect, in my opinion. How about you guys? Alan Taylor crafted and directed something so brilliant because he is so good at taking the big story beats that are going to happen whether it be history or fiction and i say that because he is the one that directed the episode of ned stark's execution on game of thrones and he also directed that exceptionally well and i think that this was his way of showing i can do big things on television and be subversive even though we all know what the what the ides of march is just the absolute parallels of like when you think things are going to happen, how you think things are going to happen and things like that was pure brilliance on his directing end. And yeah, uh, I know he's had a pretty iffy film career, but man, can that man direct an episode of television? Jacob and Cole. I thought it was good. I didn't think it was perfect. I don't know why, because there's a lot of shots in this scene that, or this episode that I like really love and adore. But um, I don't know. The first half kind of felt a little meh to me and blase, I think. Um, and all the cool stuff did happen at the end and it was all really cool, but I did kind of know all of it that was coming. So maybe like the fact that I wasn't surprised by it totally, um, I don't know, eliminated some of that for me. But uh, I thought it was good. I thought it was a good, a good great to great episode. It's just is will not be my favorite actually. Yeah. All right. All right. And Cole. I really like this episode. Uh, I don't have a least favorite moment, but uh, I will say like I wasn't a big fan of the the ending. Like specifically, just like with Polo and Irene. Just like I didn't like that that was the scene we chose to end on. I didn't yeah. like the the implications of it. Just was yeah. not a fan. Yeah, that's fair too. I also, yeah, the Arani Polo thing. HBO's Rome has, I mean, you guys have seen over half the series now. The role of women in the show, it's it's really weird to watch. And it's like, it's portraying historical times 2,000 plus years ago. But like, nonetheless, it's like, what what values are is being shown here i guess and again it's a reflection mm -hmm. of things long past but nonetheless it's it's a little uncomfy um it's uncomfy at times all right so we will get into our breakout rooms in a moment guys colon bp i've got a couple things i was wondering from you how if any did the events of this episode surprise you and coming up in the aftermath, uh, what do you think we can expect to see in Rome season two? 
episode one immediately following the aftermath of Callens of February. All right, Jacob, final breakout room of season one here. I don't wow. know about you, but I mean, gosh, there was finally just like a lot of historical meat to chew on. I feel like we're, we're eating well today. Yeah, yeah, I was... I've been so lulled into a, a, a false sense of uh, not paying attention to the history because there wasn't much to <laughs> yeah. that. Uh, the episode ended and I was like, oh, there's a lot to reflect on, isn't there, actually? Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I, my first question or my first uh, thing that kind of struck me, um, and, and I, this is probably just like a syndication for a TV thing. You don't have, you have a limited amount of time, mm-hmm. but I know like, in the lead up to Caesar's actual assassination, there was a lot of rumors of it actually happening. And like some people thought they were so ridiculous that they didn't pay any attention to them, uh, uh, specifically one Mark Antony, right? Like he had heard of these and like thought it was so silly that like he never even told Caesar, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Trebonius told him, yeah. Yeah, and I feel like that's a pretty, I don't know, maybe because it was so foreshadowed to already, like you don't need that moment. But it feels like a, a good moment for an interaction between Antony and Caesar about what is his impending doom. So mm-hmm. that was not present. Let's see here. Jacob, do you have any p- other points you want to share? I've got a couple um, listed up here, not necessarily in chronological order, and I can say them and you could react to them if you wanted to. Uh, I do have one more off the top of my head. I- I'm yeah. sure it is similar, or you probably noted it before. Or um, In my head, the assassination of Caesar wasn't so public. Like, I'd I knew like he was called to a meeting or something, but for whatever mm-hmm. reason, I did not think it was like just when every single senator was there in the Senate chambers. I, I actually do think that is factual, Jacob, okay. because like Cicero was definitely there and was not in the loop and terrified ran for his life very quick. So actually, I do kind of lean as far as accuracy goes there, although Cicero wasn't in the loop. He was not. No, it was accurate in the show here. They did not have Cicero in the loop here, which is surprising. But yeah. Wow. Yeah, because he always he's was always talking about the whole show. Like, yeah, you know, you should have let me know. I would have like, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that's crazy. That's wild. Yeah. Um. All right. So I'll kind of go through my list here. Um. This first one. Okay, Jacob. I I have not uh read the Communist Manifesto. I know it's short. I should, from a social studies perspective, someday. Have you actually read the Communist Manifesto? I... <laughs> Um, I, I have not. Okay, okay. So we're both talking out of our butts when, when I, when I say this. But my understanding, like one theme in the Communist Manifesto and Marx, is that all of history is essentially the story of class struggle. Have you heard that theory from Marx before? I, I'm sure I've heard that before. Like you can equate everything down to class and like you know the the sub the sections that fall into that. Like you know racism, you could think of as a form of classism because mm-hmm. you're subjugating a race to a lower class. Yeah. Yeah. So so like when I uh, looked at the death of the Roman Republic. I kind of saw that theme become more prevalent with that in the back of my head. It's like the reason these politicians, these populist politicians were able to acclaim so much power is that uh, people were unempowered. And so when leaders, populist leaders, seemed to break that mold and said they would be fighting for the people to raise up their class and stuff like that, that is how an autocratic government actually formed. So it was almost like a false promise that uh, was propelled by class struggle i guess so so all that is to say 
getting into my actual point about history is here. I think it's interesting and a bit contrived that the conspirators are upset that the plebeian Varinus is led into the Senate. Because I'm pretty sure at this point in Roman history, there are plenty of wealthy plebs who are senators. There is literally a tribune of the plebs. There yeah. are 10 that have to be plebeian. I am pretty sure that each year, one of Rome's senator, or sorry, one of Rome's two consuls also had to be a plebeian. Uh, Cicero himself is a novus homo. Uh, he did not have an ancestor in politics. So I'm pretty sure he's not a patrician from the patrician class at all. But it, it goes to show the TV's theme of classism that they yeah. really try to emphasize here. So that's why I brought up all that former stuff and everything like that. Um, there is, of course, an accelerated timeline of the death here. I, I'm honestly not even sure what year we're in in HBO's Rome, but it is not the Ides of March Caesar is assassinated on. It is basically a couple of days after the beginning of february the calends of february is i was curious i was wondering what that meant in the yeah. context of the name of the episode yeah i mean i guess they do the newsreader who had an inspired performance today i forgot to mention mm -hmm. uh yeah he did say calends of february and i was like oh, okay yeah yeah and um i you know the first time i watched that that threw me for a loop i saw the episode title calends of february and i'm like you know, that's kind of dramatic phrasing, but I guess Caesar's going to live to season two. And nope, they just changed it, um, which I, I that's fine. That's fine in my book. That's cool. It's still I actually kind of don't like that. Really? OK. Because okay. I feel like, I don't know, it's such a, a well-known event in history. Like, even yeah. if you don't know what it is, you've heard of the Ides of March. Yeah. And I feel like it almost creates like this false equivocancy. That's not right for what I mean. But like this false perception of history where like you maybe if you didn't actually know, but you just wanted to watch Rome, like you saw, yeah. oh, this looks cool. And like you would not think that Caesar was assassinated on the Ides of March after watching like, oh, actually, Caesar mm. was assassinated in the Calends of February. It doesn't feel like something that's all that difficult to adhere to in the history. And so. Yeah, fair I enough. Don't like that. Yeah. Fair enough. This was this was one of the creative liberties that I did like that the show takes. I did not like the Octavian Octavia thing, but this is one that <laughs> well I documented don't personally. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I will say something I don't like about this assassination, Jacob. Um, why did they not include Pompey's statue? Because uh, Caesar literally died beneath a statue oh. of Pompey Magnus. That the scene would have been so much better. And more powerful um and the poetry's before... already dripping yeah, yeah yeah there could have been a really cool scene beforehand of how caesar posthumously honors pompey with the statue as a misguided hero of the republic assassinated by the egyptians um cole would have been happy that's but... what i was gonna say Cole would have <laughs> loved that yeah yeah no that would have been uh, i don't know why they didn't go that direction uh what else here caesar expanded the senate uh with people who would support him um some gauls even that's true. There was no Lupercalia. There was none of that festival where Antony offered Caesar a crown, which Caesar had yeah. refused in political theater. I guess they kind of cut that for time. Would have been interesting to see. Would have been interesting to see how the Antony butt compares to Varinus, but season two might come around. Um, mm -hmm. Let's see. No mention of Caesar soon leaving for Parthia because in real life, um, Caesar was supposed to leave for war three days before the Ides of March, which really puts Brutus and Cassius and the conspirators on a clock. So that not being mentioned, you know, it's take it or leave it, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and I did like this parallel. Caesar in the show and in real life realized that people were upset at him. 
uh, but he had bet that they would not touch him. For the historical real Caesar, he believed no one was stupid enough to trigger another civil war if he was killed because they just got out of Caesar versus Pompey a generation before it was Sola's prescriptions after his civil war with Marius. And before that, it was the Gracchi. So, success oh, social war in there as well. So successfully, mm -hmm. there have been several wars per generation and the Roman people were getting tired of it. And so historical Caesar bets, you know, you guys see the writing on the wall. If I die, what's going to occur? So it's better to let me take the reins than have another civil war. That was historical Caesar's bet that he had lost. For the show Caesar, he believed Varinus as a meat shield and a prestige shield um, with the popular support at his side would protect him. And thus no one would be stupid enough to kill him and Varinus and make themselves pariahs. My final point here, Brutus emphatically believes no one besides Caesar should be killed on the Ides of March. In the show, it's Servilia. That is the genesis of this notion. Mm. But yeah, that is basically everything that I could pick apart from there. Um, Jacob, anything else? Or any reactions worth noting, you think? No, I don't have anything else. I think uh, the slight change to from Brutus to Servilia in my head works fine because they're yeah. still family is like yeah i mean it's still a slight bastardization of the history but not very egregious but sure yeah sure yeah all right well we will get um the boys back in here so guys the questions were how did the events of the episode surprise you if any did and what do you think is going to happen in rome season two episode one i will note really quick guys last week i really tried to telegraph to you the this episode was not called the ides of march it's called Calends of february and i was hoping to trick you into thinking caesar would not be killed this episode because i was tricked the first time i watched it myself but uh i guess i failed in that endeavor but guys yeah go and share your responses i was not surprised by a whole lot of this episode the only thing i think came close to surprising me which i guess in a way did surprise me was how Varinus found out about Niobe's infidelity. Mm. That I definitely thought it was going to be either Polo would later on confess about it, or uh, he would just hear through word of mouth because a lot of people in Rome knew what that was happening. Uh, but I did not expect it to be a political scheming by Servilia to send one of her slaves out to tell him. Yeah. Cole, how about you? Any surprises this episode for you? I was surprised at like how they portrayed the assassination. And I feel like what this was was more accurate than what I was expecting because I haven't like seen any other media where that's portrayed. I was imagining it more like the like Game of Thrones type thing where like they, they step up one at a time and like just stab him like and just go back and forth. Even though like that scenario makes no sense and that would play out, but uh, like this, like being more like violent was like, oh, okay. Yeah. 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 And guys, any predictions for season two, episode one, what do you expect to see occurring in Rome or elsewhere? Possibly. I see the Senate being in a lot of division and chaos uh, to start things off because I see a lot of people who are allies or not necessarily even allies, but loyal to or Caesar's more closer allies compared to the conspirators. I definitely see them trying to make it come back against them. But also I see the ending of this episode begin the rise of the Roman empire. Okay. Whoa. 
DP, do you want to like, I mean, Whoa. do you want to expound upon that at all? I think that the episode will start off immediately where this episode left off. Okay. But I think throughout the episode, we are going to see some significant time jumps happen where the Roman empire is not necessarily built by the end of the first episode, but is beginning its foundation. Okay. Can I ask a question for that? Perhaps. Sure. Sure. BP. If the Roman empire is being founded in episode one of season two, who is the Roman emperor. Well, given what I know from history, it I don't remember what they actually changed his name to, but I am fairly certain Octavian is the first emperor of Rome. Okay, we'll see. All right. Cole, any predictions for you, man? I just predicted a, a downward spiral in the fortunes of the Julii. Mm, okay, okay. Not like literally like their money, but like their luck. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. Big, big Papa's gone at the present. Um, all uh-huh. right, guys. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts there. All right, folks, any least favorite moments from Callum's of February that you feel are worth sharing? I had not necessarily a least favorite moment, just one thing that stuck out to me. The Senate scene before the Ides of March, where uh, Caesar looks at Brutus and does the wave and things like that. There were a couple times that editing just kind of still felt a little iffy, just kind of like random, like choppiness and things like that. But it was very, very minor in terms of everything else because it wasn't wasn't my least favorite moment, but it was a moment that stuck out to me that if I had to pick one, that would be one. But overall, great episode. All right. Anyone else, guys? I didn't have one. No? Okay. All right. Well, guys, um, instead of quizzing this week, we are doing two favorite moments because, man, this this had a lot of meat on its bones here. Um, so everyone is going to have two favorite moments to share. I suppose we can all just share in a circle, and I will go first. Um, my two favorite moments, I'll just preface them first, were Caesar's final scene and Niobe and Varinus, uh, their ceremony on the farm. I have already talked uh, everything I need to say about Caesar's final scene, so I will just say my piece about Niobe and Varinus here. It is the final culmination of the rekindling of their relationship. They are head over heels in love with each other. They lie with each other on a field in a, in a religious ceremony. And when I say it's like the final rekindling, this final culmination of love, it literally reminds me of a wedding in particular, and particularly like the first dance a couple will make on on the wedding floor because they're making jokes. They're talking about their futures together as they're laying down there on the field, uh, this eternal commitment they're making between the two of them. Um, Everyone else, Varinus and Niobe's family is watching them just like we watch the couple dance on the dance floor and what the bride and groom talk about as they go dancing and we see them laughing there. That's something that we in the audience don't see. That is something that Niobe and Varinus's family doesn't hear as they just watch them through the ceremony, Varinus and Niobe talking in the mud. It is a moment only the two of them are going to share. And they're supposed to simulate sex and Niobe wants Varinus to kiss her and then they do. And all they have to do is kiss until the bell rings, but they keep kissing because they're so in love. It is like a wedding. It is the zenith. That's the height, right? Um, yeah. So you get to their relationship, and it quite literally 
God, it's just hitting me. It quite literally falls off um, later on by the end. So, yeah. Um, guys, a favorite moment from someone else here. My favorite moment in this episode is the Ides of March. Everything that this was all leading up to, uh, everything that the previous episode had set up to culminate to this one. This is just... I've already said enough things about how it was directed, the smart maneuvering by Servilia, the conspirators and Brutus, uh, how to get Varinus, Mark Antony, and Pasca out of the out of the Senate chamber so that they can assassinate Caesar. Just that moment of hesitancy for Brutus, because even though he is probably gonna follow through with this assassination, he drops his knife. And just in awe, realizing that this is not what it was meant to be. This is going way more brutally, brutally than any people, anyone had actually thought it would. And I didn't, don't know what other word I can describe this word, this scene, because it's brutal. But I wouldn't even call this an assassination or a murder. I said it was a massacre just on one individual in the breakout room. But in a way, this is... Uh, that just shows how not necessarily unloyal people were to Caesar at this point, but how unwilling they were to help fight to keep Caesar alive. Uh, and that just shows the mastercraft of how this episode came about. And I really love this moment. My second favorite moment was the scene with Verenus and Polo interacting. And I already talked about that with, uh, earlier in the episode yeah all right cool uh my second favorite moment was varinus holding niobe because it just felt like it was such like a a perfect image of like the tragedy of varinus's character where like he's a good person and he tries to do good things and usually succeeds but then some misfortune always befalls him and like things seem like they're getting better but then something happens just make it worse and this felt like the the perfect representation of that where he's like sitting there crying because he doesn't really know how to react because he's still processing the revelation about lucius but now like his wife who he still loves is dead and then little lucius walks up and he just like doesn't know how to process any of the emotions he's feeling like i i felt like everything he was feeling in that scene and i thought it was great mm-hmm um, if we're uh, jumping back to me, uh, my first favorite thing is the actor Kevin McKidd. He does play the part of Arenas, and he ha- and I have thought, butt. yes, and Arenas's butt. Weird how that works out. Um, <laughs> I thought he's been exceptional the entire series, and this episode, like we just see him at his absolute zenith as an actor in this show. Um, because we, I mean, we see the dynamics of it. We start out at a high, high and, you know, it's, it's, I mean, to say it's believable is an understatement. It's like you, yeah, it is, it is the reality of it is what it seems. And then as we get into this turmoil, um, I already talked about this beautiful shot where he first learns about it and you see the sternness of his face as he's just listening and staring off into the distance and how the anger builds up. And like, he's very, as Kay pointed out, like so angry, it brings him to tears. And then like in that final scene where he's as 
Cole mentioned, he's holding Niobe. He's like literally like completely red in the face and like so anguished and like i i like i just feel it and every muscle muscle of his face is like tense and and pained and it's just is whew, wow get this guy a, a tv award an emmy get him one of those all right jacob thanks for sharing cole your last final favorite thing my most favorite thing of this episode was caesar just in general now Firstly, I'd like to talk about a, a moment that we didn't really go into any detail on uh, in the assassination scene, which was like his death where he like grabs the toga and is like attempting to cover his face. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I shared uh, with BP in the breakout room uh, what it m- probably was. And it was like a, him like spasming and seizing uh, and like a, just like that was what happened. But uh, what I like to think it was is a... Caesar has always been a man who's who's been in control. He he doesn't like his weaknesses to be seen. And what moment is weaker than your literal death? So I think that moment was him like trying to like r- retain some semblance of like his dignity by like hiding his face so that like you don't see the moment of his death. He just like, he's there, he covers it and then he's gone. Like no one sees it happen. Cole, you're 100% right. That was uh, real. That's that's real history. And yeah, I do. Many people assume that's what Caesar's intention was. But yeah, yeah, you're totally clocked that correctly. I do want to bring up something that Cole brought up because I wanted to talk about this when we got back. Kay, you mentioned how we never hear anything about Octavia and Octavian's relationship again. We also have not heard anything on Caesar's medical condition on how that really is going to affect anything, how that really was effective. So I'm kind of wondering, was there any point to introducing it at all? Well, you know, historically, he did possibly suffer from seizures. And it story-wise is a catalyst that eventually leads to uh, the Ides of March. Because without the knowledge of the seizures then Servilia does not pursue the information from Octavia and uh, Octavia does not reveal that Lucius was cuckolded, essentially. So as a plot device, that does serve the greater story and is also a historical thing that occurred. But uh, good question, Brad up BP. That took me a sec to process. Um, Cole, did you want to expound upon your love for Caesar this episode, though? Yes, because yeah. I know that... Uh... The assassination of Caesar is like still historically a, a hotly debated topic, like whether he was like a, a power hungry tyrant or a man that uh, saw a dying republic and uh, wanted to do his best uh, so he could get into a position to save it. And I like this episode kind of helped put, point me towards it. I've been going there the past few episodes, but I think it was both. Because uh, I do think uh, at the end of the day, Caesar is like kind of narcissistic. He like, uh, he wants to be the one in charge. He thinks he'd be the, be the best at it. It's like to, to boost his own ego. But also, he doesn't want to be the guy that was running Rome that turned it into like a pile of crap. So like he sees all these things he views as flaws within Rome, not only the city, but like the all of like the territory Rome occupies as like a republic or an empire. But I think he says, no, I want this to be like a, the golden age of rome so i'm gonna like 
bring all these extra senators in from like these like the the plebeians and the the gauls and the the celts like i want to like hear like the line he says uh to antony and posca i think or he might say it to cicero too where he's like uh i want the hundreds hundred brightest men of italy not the 100 richest oldest men in rome hmm. there's like i love that he's like he's feeding his own ego but at the same time he's like enhancing the lives of like the common citizens of rome and it's just like it's tragic that like that was uh taken down before it had a chance to truly be what it was going to be yeah yeah all right and jacob your final thing you want to share my final favorite thing of season one of HBO's Rome, um, and I guess this is this episode, but also applies to the, the series uh, so far in general, I think, is the pacing and the patience that is within some shots. And I that can be applied, I guess, on the season scale and the episode scale, because certainly there's a lot of plot points that are the seed is planted very early on. And um, we really don't know what's going to come of it until the end here. Um, the obvious example being Lucius Varinus, uh, I guess the younger Lucius Varinus uh, baby uh, and his uh, heritage or patronage. That's not the right word there, right? Paternity. Yeah, uh... that's that's much more apt. Um so, I mean, that's just like, I don't know, kudos, good writing, you know, you could easily bite or you could really easily, um, you know, do something about that like immediately after. But it is like shows more planning. It is more effectual to sit on it. But within the episode in particular, I thought there was a series of shots that um, they really did not give us relief from. Right. We mm-hmm. were forced to sit in them. Um, and just experience the severity of them or just like take them in for whatever they are for their duration. Uh, The obvious example there, of course, being Caesar's assassination. We've already talked in great detail how grotesque and brutal it is. And uh, to see him, this this former uh, essentially king, flailing on the ground and and flailing, flailing on the ground is uh, we, we see every bit of it, every second of it. And it is effectual. It is uh, leaves an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end, um, the scene with Irene and Polo, they walk off into the distance and we don't cut away from it quickly. We see them kind of walk into the horizon and, and disappear almost. And it's certainly a different vibe, but it like forces you to sit and think with it and and wonder and ponder what is going to come and i feel like there was another scene this episode that did this as well but um i've lost it in the realm of my notes but i i thought overall just this episode's just like it just made us sit with things and i thought that was cool i like being forced to sit with something so yes yeah jacob well said well said there um with that guys it's 10 p.m on a school night let's hit this outro so if you want to learn more about the real history, roughly the last half of Death of the Roman Republic, Chapter 14, Dictator for Life, uh, is available to listen to, where you can hear my interpretation of the Ides of March in audio format. Oh, uh, it is, it is much more silly than what you see on screen. Uh, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts if you're able to. Everyone's able to. Um, you can catch Don't Worry Darling releasing this week in theaters with BP. He'll be at every showing possible. Uh, my fellow host, do you have anything to promote? 
Hello, my name is Jacob Shaver. You can follow me on Twitter at SoupCatfish. You can follow me on YouTube at The Great Wilds. <sighs> you may follow me on Letterboxd, Beepit Oil Spill 98. And trust me, you will see my hopefully five-star review of Don't, you, Don't Worry Darling this weekend. And maybe at some point I'll reveal my Twitter handle. Maybe we'll see how the stars align. Yes, the, the stars will decide that. But yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Lilborty. That's L-I-L underscore B-O-R-T-Y. On a dry spell right now, as said in the past. But, you know, if I ever think of something funny, I throw it on there. So you'll be, you'll be there to see it live. All right. With all that said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoyed HBO's Rome season one. Mm-hmm.